HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. When gardening is part of your life, it brings so much. Healthy eating, the freshest, most local produce, and playing in the dirt. At BonniePlants.com, you'll find all you need to succeed. When you grow Bonnie veggie and herb plants in beds or containers, you'll know where your food comes from. Homegrown veggies and herbs ready for cooking, eating, and enjoying. And you did it. So get growing with Bonnie Plants. You are listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Welcome to the food scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel, here today with another host, another podcaster, Christy Harrison of Food Psych. I'm going to spell psych, too, because it took me so many times uh, without <laughs> yeah. spell check to actually figure out how to spell it. But psych is P-S-Y-C-H, and it's FoodPsychPod.com. I was lucky enough to uh, be on your show already, so this is just me reciprocating, yeah. but also just putting podcast love out there because the more the merrier you know food radio for life absolutely excellent so welcome to the station um thanks for having me food psych is a really interesting show because i I too work at the intersections of things Mm -hmm. food art and design and you food and psychology Mm -hmm. and for you to get to that point in your life because i actually briefly met you in the gourmet test kitchens right um and you had the food writing Mm -hmm. you know path that direction but you've always had this secondary, be it tertiary, thing about mm-hmm. psychology. I don't know if it's a pun if you say it's always been in the back of your mind. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> but, but tell me about, you know, growing up, were these like two roads converge in the woods or bisect or whatever, mm-hmm. whatever that is? Oh, yeah. So many intersections of those two. Um, my, mom, my mom is a therapist, so I think that's kind of where it all began. Um, she's a clinical social worker and she sees people about, you know, uh, 
all kinds of issues in their life. And yet she also has some of her own struggles with food. She doesn't specialize in eating disorders or anything like that. So she, um, you know, kind of personally showed me a model of eating that was a little bit disordered, but also, you know, there was a love, there was a, an excitement about food um, from both her and my dad. And they're both terrified of becoming overweight, even though they both have never been. So my relationship to food was always one that was very um, fraught, I would say. Yeah, it's it's funny because you hear that fear a lot, and now it's mm-hmm. like a stage of food where people are more fearless and adventurous in what they eat. But there still is that fear about disorders. Totally. I mean, that, that doesn't come into the discussion as much as it, you know, really exists. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I think in the food writing world, it's actually somewhat common for people to have disordered eating, maybe borderline eating disorders. The whole thing is such a spectrum because, you know, clinically diagnosable eating disorders are, are, you know, supposedly very rare, but a lot of them are just undiagnosed. And a lot of people have symptoms that might classify as an eating disorder and they just never get help. Uh, some people have, you know, just disordered eating that doesn't really fall into the clinical category, but they, you know, they still have issues. Disordered, that's like dessert before appetizers. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but tell me about this study in the 50s that actually talked oh, about, yeah. you know, people who were starving, seeking jobs within the food industry. Right. So this is called the Minnesota Starvation Experiment. It was done before um, there was a lot of regulations on what you could do with human subjects. So <laughs> they would never get away with this now. But uh, it was done with, I think, conscientious, conscientious objectors or people who didn't go to war, but, you know, men of, of like fighting age. Um, and they were taken into a laboratory setting. Um, their calories were restricted to like less than 50%, I think, of what their bodies needed for, I can't remember what the period was, six to eight months, long time, maybe a year. Um, and they uh, had all kinds of psychological ramifications as they became more and more underweight. And a lot of them, because they were around the age where they were sort of deciding what their career paths would be, ended up totally switching gears from what they had done before and going into food-related fields. Yeah. I mean, have, have you seen some of those careers? Have you? Mm-hmm. Is, is there writing that you can find of some of the, the patients or some of the... Oh, that's such a good question. I don't know. I haven't seen anything from them. Yeah. Um, but, you know, there are people who, like Frank Bruni talks about this in his memoir, Born Round, um, that, you know, his disordered relationship to food started very young and had something to do with why he chose to go into the food writing business. So if you were writing your own memoir, which Mm -hmm. I guess you have to do. Sure. um, (laughs) Can you pinpoint, you know, that that point in your life where you either realized at that point you were having some kind of eating disorder or disordered Mm -hmm. eating or reflect back and realize that's when it started yeah it's it's funny because it didn't i was in such denial at the time that i don't think i really recognized it for myself then but now looking back i can see it so clearly um it was about 10 years ago so i was you know graduating college about 22 and i was terrified you know i didn't know how to be an adult i didn't know how to not be in school and i think i turned to restricting food as an outlet which is such a common story you know people control food because they can't control other things in their life Um, But it happened that I had just gained weight uh, on a study abroad trip to France previously, and I had never had an issue with my weight before, and suddenly I was thinking about it, so I decided, okay, I'm going to lose weight by any any means necessary. I had maybe 15 pounds, you know, that I had gained, so I was like, started running, started restricting my calories, tried to go low-carb and vegetarian at the same time, which is not a very good idea. (laughs) 
uh, and lost all the weight I had gained and then some and got really um, got into trouble. But nobody diagnosed me at the time. Um, I did enroll in a study unbeknownst to my friends and family. I, you know, found a flyer at the student health center about this study they were doing on people with eating disorders, enrolled in that. So they did diagnose me with something. I think it was eating disorder, not otherwise specified at the time. Um, And I got some help through that, which didn't really stick. But I think that helped start my journey towards, you know, getting stuff figured out. I mean, you you were saying two words, restriction and diet. And, Mm -hmm. you know, it's funny because those things are usually one and the same. But they they seem like such polar words when you think Mm -hmm. about them. You know, diets for improvement where restriction almost seems like it's not. Right. Um, Are there a lot of diets that aren't restriction-oriented? There are, but in the nutrition field now, there's increasing evidence that diets, quote-unquote in general, are not the best way to sustain any sort of you know healthy behaviors or weight loss, um, that really it has to be lifestyle change. And, you know... It can't be something like uh, the Atkins diet or the South Beach diet or the Dukan or whatever you know diet of the month it is because those are all sort of fads that restrict one food group or the other. So really diets, I mean, the, the idea of diet and the idea of restriction are pretty interrelated in terms of the fad diets. Um, but for a healthy, you know, overall balanced diet, you really have to have no restrictions but just balance. Yeah, so let's talk about longevity sustainability because Mm -hmm. you work or have worked for new york department of health and in doing so trying to you know create a future of of better food systems within the city itself yeah Uh, how how have you gone about doing that and where do you see it going so it's interesting because uh i think my thinking on it has evolved a little bit since i started working in that field um I think it's really true that environmental factors are so important for people's food choices uh, and people will make the easy choice. So if it's, you know, if they're in a hospital and what's presented to them is like chicken nuggets and jello, they're going to eat that. If they're, you know, in line somewhere and they see an impulse purchase of candy, they're going to get that. You know, it's it's much more likely for people to reach for things that are convenient. So the work at the Department of Health I was doing was helping to change the food environment so that the healthier choice would be the easier choice and that those foods would just appear in front of people that, you know, fruits and vegetables, whole grains, um, lean meats and stuff would be more available than the other alternatives. So you say would Mm -hmm. as if it happened or, you know, happened and didn't really work out so well. What what kind of, you know, things were instituted, you know, examples? Mm -hmm. Sure. Yeah. So um, it, it did. It actually has been pretty effective, like in terms of city agencies have all been required to change their menus. Um, There's very specific standards, a whole long list of standards that city agencies have to follow, including like 50% of their grains have to be whole grains. Um, You know, they have to, they have to serve at least, I think, I can't remember now, it's been a little while since I looked at the standards, but at least I think it's one vegetable per meal, one fruit and one vegetable. Um, You know, there's vitamin and mineral standards for the day. There's calorie limits. So, you know, you can't go over like 2,500 calories for men or I think it's 2,200 for women, um, plus or minus about 10%. Yeah. Um, So it's, you know, there's highly specific standards for menu design, basically, in these facilities like hospitals, homeless shelters, schools. um, And 
you know, it was difficult in practice to get those organizations to change their menus because they have such institutionalized um, processes. So it was more expensive sometimes for them to change. It was, you know, required more labor, more effort on the part of the administrators. Um, a lot of different reasons that it was a challenge for people to make those changes. But, you know, at the city level, all the agencies have implemented the standards. Uh, and then a lot of private hospitals have also implemented the standards voluntarily. Yeah, I mean, I didn't mean that as a criticism onto the New York mm. Department of Health or any project you were working on, but I find it fascinating that you are kind of imploring this diet within those mm -hmm. restrictions. And the reason it's so hard for it to work is because people aren't used to that, you know? Right. And it is a healthy diet that you're trying to put into action, but you're taking a lot of people that are outside of that you know, model mm -hmm. and trying to put them into something they're not used to. And yeah. that's where more of the pushback comes than the finances, I feel like. Yeah. You know, that people aren't taking on the responsibility of realizing this is good for them or that, right. you know, this is a route that they should be taking. Yeah, I think that's true. And that's that was a huge challenge for sure. Getting either getting people to accept the new changes or getting the administration to you know, take a risk that people might accept or not accept the new changes that, you know, they weren't sure yet how their customer base would respond. And I think it is really, I mean, now that I'm working more with eating disorders, I think it's a really tricky thing to work to improve the public's health and improve nutrition at the larger scale, but then also allow individuals at the individual level to make their own choices and feel okay about them. Um, so a lot of the stuff with the Department of Health is trying to model those healthier habits and more balance overall. But when you take that too far, when you're someone who's like, will only eat organic, will only eat things from small farmers that are whole, you know, whole food based, no convenience foods, that starts to become a little bit restrictive. You know, it, it tips into that restrictive category. So let's talk one on one. As a mm -hmm. nutritionist, what kind of questions would you ask me, you know, to learn more about you know, my health, my diet, my lifestyle. Sure. So, yeah, I mean, one thing I always do is ask people what a typical day looks like for them. So, you know, what do you eat for breakfast? What oh, you want you... to know right now what sure. I eat for breakfast? <laughs> I had a bagel with butter. Okay. And then a walking chicken biscuit. And by that, I what? mean, I got a chicken biscuit and I walked and ate it en route here <laughs> from Pies and Thighs. Gotcha. Yeah. So that was lunch. Kinda. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean... And then what about dinner? What do you typically do for dinner? Dinner? Um, you know, not big proteins. Mm -hmm. If it is, it's fish. I mean, any grains and vegetables. Mm -hmm. um, I have no idea tonight. We have nothing in the fridge, so take oh, out. Oh, yeah. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> this is New York, so you've yeah. got, you got options. <laughs> um, yeah, so, I mean, I would say, depending on your goals, you know, people come in for nutrition visits with all kinds of different goals. So, you know, if you were looking to get more fruits and vegetables in your diet or to lose weight or something, I would say, like, okay, you could start with breakfast and lunch. You know, you could start with adding more whole grains and fruits there, maybe a vegetable at lunch or whatever. Um, sounds like dinner's pretty good. But, you know, if you were someone with an eating disorder who was coming in and saying, uh, you know, I'm in recovery or I'm trying to, you know, manage my anorexia and here's what I'm eating, I'd be like, you're doing amazing, yeah. you know, <laughs> like chicken biscuit, yeah. well done. Yeah. Um, so it's very individualized. Yeah, and when I was on your show, we, mm -hmm. we talked about some of my OCD nature mm -hmm. in life, but also how I deal with food. Um, and I fluctuate, you know, weight mm. sometimes pretty tremendously throughout the year, mm -hmm. whether or not it's, you know, the cookbook 20 or, you know, <laughs> yeah. just, just that point of the season where I want to do nothing but bake bread and eat it too. Yeah. I'm not a big cake fan, but you know, 
I, I, I personally feel pretty healthy in my own skin. Mm-hmm. But do you see people that, you know, are certain, I don't know, body type or a certain lifestyle that say they're healthy, but they're really not? It depends. I mean, some people do. Some people are in denial, like their doctor will refer them for nutrition counseling because they have high cholesterol or they're at risk for heart disease or diabetes, and they don't see why they should change their diet. And at that point, you know, their lab values are showing that they do have something going on. Um, So I would say, like, let's work to break through that denial or that, you know, what is it that's standing in the way of acknowledging that these are health risks and that your diet could help them. But I mean, I do believe in health at every size. So if you're someone who is a larger person who doesn't have a lot of, you know, health risks or anything going on biochemically and you're, you know, happy with what you're eating and the way you look, then more power to you, you know. Well, we're going to talk about health in every profession too when oh. we come back. Talk a little more about Food Psych, the podcast hosted by Christy Harrison. You've been listening to The Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Durkel. We'll be right back. Like what you hear so far? Support the network and become a member. Membership helps us bring you the best food radio in the world and gives you access to thousands of dollars in discounts at the sustainably-minded businesses that support us. To become a member, visit heritageradionetwork.org today. is part of your life, it brings so much. Healthy eating, the freshest, most local produce, and playing in the dirt. At BonniePlants.com, you'll find all you need to succeed. When you grow Bonnie veggie and herb plants in beds or containers, you'll know where your food comes from. Homegrown veggies and herbs ready for cooking, eating, and enjoying. And you did it. So get growing with Bonnie Plants. And welcome back to the food scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Your host, Michael Harlan Turkel, can here with Chrissy Harrison of Food Psych Podcast. And there are so many professions that you've talked to about this, you know, not just people, but chefs, comedians, writers, actors, other psychologists, entrepreneurs. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, this isn't a warning per se, but this is eye-opening to know that, you know, many people have eating disorders, if not most every person in some fashion or disordered eating, Mm -hmm. which I want to figure out what that difference of definition really is. But where do you see it most from? Is there any specific uh, sect of, you know, person, ethnicity, you know, uh, lifestyle? I, not really. I mean, there's no, uh, you know, statistics-wise, there it can affect anyone. And from what I've seen in the podcast, I feel like everyone I've interviewed ha- has had some kind of 
issue with food, you know, whether it's caretaking through food or um, avoiding certain foods or like not being able to control yourself around certain foods. Uh, Everybody has something. I think actors and comedians are often more willing to talk about it (laughs) and they, you know, are uh, able to laugh at themselves and kind of manage shame in that way. So, you know, maybe that's why a lot of my guests have been actors and comedians. Well, I mean, let's talk about Greg Brown in specific. Oh, yeah. Because not only is he a comedian, but he also worked in kitchens for Mm -hmm. years. So he was like that great collision of those two fronts. Uh, What was his, you know, health like working in those conditions oh he had the worst experience working in kitchens um he was working himself into the ground i think he was around 21 or so at the time and uh was in one of those kitchens where they you know paid a salary but they asked him to stay later and come in on his days off and i think he said he was working about 90 hour weeks and um he got so sick he had to go to the hospital with um pneumonia he ended up with pneumonia and then turned into something else. He had all these complications and was, you know, I guess close to death at age 21 when he was in his best shape of his life. He said he was running marathons and, you know, had amazing health. Otherwise, it was just the the crazy hours and the stress that broke him down. Yeah. And it's funny that, it, well, it's not funny, but that mm-hmm. it revolved in a kitchen or yeah. around food, you know, because a, a lot of eating health isn't just about what you put in your body, but what you put your body through. Mm-hmm. Um, and across the board you see the restaurant industry and there are people working long hours and whether or not that's ever going to change who knows Mm -hmm. but there's a way to realize how to work those hours and how to treat your body and how to fuel your body with food nutrition and and thoughtfulness right Uh, uh, you know not be in that situation at such a young age yeah and i think there's so few uh options available sometimes if you're working in a kitchen and you can't run out to get something you just eat what's in front of you or what somebody's prepared for family meal and that's going to be you know generally cheaper food convenient food and you know i know a lot of chefs eat a lot of fast food on their time off too um so it's it's hard to make those choices when yeah. you're so exhausted. I mean, I really want to do more of a study in family meals, too, mm-hmm. because I, I see that kind of upping the ante. And, you know, restaurants that serve, you know, local, sustainable, farm-to-table, all those buzzwords, yeah. only in the past few years have incorporated that into, you know, family meals, staff mm-hmm. meals, you know, either realizing that that value should be across the board or that it's helping their workers work to a higher efficiency. Mm-hmm. So there, there's got to be something there. Yeah, I'm very curious about that too. Power bars. I was thinking <laughs> about this today because I carry a couple around in my bag. Uh-huh. Just in case if you're in a pinch, you know, you need something to yeah. eat. I, I carry those around. But w- what do you think about those types of food that, you know, even even Snickers was like in mm-hmm. case of hunger. Right. You know, the, these instant fixes, which really aren't meals. Yeah, you know, it depends on how you use them. I would say, I mean, I do occasionally eat something like that, too. And actually, recently, I've had um, a couple eating disorder clients who take supplements like those shakes and sure or whatever. And uh, I've gotten into drinking those because they're quick and easy. And like, if you don't have a snack, you know, it's it's a good source of vitamins and protein. Um, But you know, are, so is it? Are you doing that in place of a meal? Or are you doing that as a snack in an emergency if your blood sugar gets too low? Uh, you know, they're all pretty high in sugar and they're pretty processed. So I think in terms of how you're spending your food dollar, you know, you need to look at like, do you really, you know, feel good about that about spending money in a in, on you know highly processed foods, or do you want to buy something that you can 
you know, feel better about supporting. A lot of factors, I guess, go into play. But I think, you know, having a, a power bar in your bag for emergencies, I'm all for that. If it's, you know, if you're not skipping a meal just to have that. Oh, no, certainly not. If not, sometimes it's like an appetizer for the rest of the <laughs> Sometimes I crumble it up on a salad. No, I don't oh, do that. Delicious. Body image. Because mm-hmm. you've had a couple people on, actors and models, uh, Casey Clark in The Life of Pi, mm-hmm. P-I-E. I love food puns. Yeah. Uh, Lulu <laughs> Fogarty in Sizing Up. Uh-huh. But, you know, both both were working in industries, too, where, where body image mattered so much mm-hmm. that health kind of fell by the wayside. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So these people um, were both pretty healthy, you know, decent, decent shape and, you know, good size for their height. And um, were both told by directors or modeling agents or whatever that they were too big. Or in in the case of Lulu Fogarty, she was um, working abroad in Taiwan and was approached by a plus-size modeling agency. And this is a lady who's like a U.S. size 4, so to be called plus-size was a real shock for her because that's just not, you know, something we would consider plus-size here, but it's a whole other cultural phenomenon there. Um, So, you know, both of these girls, I think, had to have women... I would say girls <laughs> shouldn't do that. <laughs> um, you know, had to had to come to terms with you know what does what's a healthy way to be the size that my industry is asking me to be, or do I even want to do that? Is that you know is that a healthy um, road to go down? Because if a, an agent asks you to lose five pounds and someone else can ask you to lose ten, is you know what's really really realistic for your body? Um, and so it really influenced their food choices and, you know, the way they exercised and kind of every aspect of their lives for a while. And fortunately, both of these women never spiraled into full-blown eating disorders. I think both of them had some disordered, you know, stuff around food for a little while, but they had grown up with such healthy relationships to food to begin with that they were able to come out of it without really, you know, doing lasting damage. Um, but not everybody's so lucky. I think it, you know, so much depends on what you grew up with, if you saw someone modeling disordered eating around you. I know so many women who, you know, grow up with mothers who are always restricting. My mom was was always kind of trying to lose five pounds, too. Um, you know, so people who are, are eating to support a certain look, you know, that's such the norm in our society now. And it's hard for people to avoid and certain, especially in acting and modeling. So I mean, let's talk about health versus mental health, too, because mm-hmm. now that you're able to reflect on your own, you know, EDs, as it were, yeah. uh, and have the wherewithal to actually kind of, you know, uh, pick those apart as a nutritionist. Were there points where you were healthy, but your mental state wasn't and, you know, others where your mental state was, but you weren't physically healthy? Definitely. Yeah, I would say um, when I was living abroad in France, you know, and gained all that weight, I was having a lot of, you know, other side effects, acne and, you know, hormonal stuff. And so clearly my body was not happy with being at that you know, whatever was going on that made me gain the weight, I think was the cause of those other things too. Um, and yet I was mentally sort of okay at first. I, you know, I didn't really register that I was gaining weight. It was only when I split a pair of pants that I was like, Oh, what's happening? <laughs> See, that's when I stopped wearing uh, skinny jeans, but that's a whole yeah, other story. Just, like, go to a different thing. Um, but yeah, but then, you know, when I was, quote unquote healthy and a lot of people in my life were applauding me for running and, you know, eating right, quote unquote, um, I was mentally getting more and more obsessed with food and, you know, counting calories and just becoming very uh, immersed in my own little world. That was the eating and that's the eating disorder mindset. You know, it's 
you it, it takes over your mind and it takes over your life and people around you might actually think you're doing great and you look great and you know what's your secret and sometimes there's jealousy or there's you know the desire to join what you're doing um so i think you know a lot of people a, a lot of women in particular um will go through moments like this and if you come out the other side you can sort of recognize like we need as as a society to not glorify this you know this size and these certain types of bodies because it's not realistic for everyone and mentally to get there is impossible for some people did you feel like you could parlay that notion while working for gourmet i know you've done mm-hmm. work for modernist cuisine uh, um you actually worked at chow the same time uh-huh. that i did um, which i only realized today when i look back at archives oh, yeah. but were you able to write about things that affected you know that body image level that affected you know the these other you know health issues that you were dealing with a little bit at chow i did cover a couple things that touched on eating disorders and body image um but truthfully at the time i was still recovering from my own eating disorders and i think i was you know i threw myself into food writing to help uh get excited about food again and it it felt like a life preserver this was your own minnesota starvation it was my exactly Um, so I don't, I don't think I was able to do as much of that as I wanted to then, or as I would have wanted to now, but I'm starting to, starting to think about that more in all the writing I do about food. Yeah. And what other food writers do you look towards for those kind of multidimensional talks about food? Yeah. I mean, you know, in terms of body image, um, it's not so many food writers actually at this point, I think. Frank Bruni, you know, does touch on it in his memoir and some of his columns. He's he's mentioned it. So I think he's a good model. Um, Michael Pollan and, you know, Marion Nestle, Mark Bittman, I think for the food politics side of things and, you know, certain to a certain extent, the psychology of of food, you know, big food and agribusiness. Um, But I I feel like there's this sort of intersection of food and food writing and body image and you know public health nutrition and like eating disorder nutrition that is not quite served yet or it you know no, there's a podcast called food Psych yeah. that kind of touches on all that yeah right well that's that's what i'm hoping yeah. <laughs> but i also want to go back to you know this definition of what an eating disorder versus disordered eating is mm-hmm. too because that that's i'm not really aware of that separation totally and it is such a it's such a spectrum i mean i think the real defining factor is a how many disordered behaviors do you have around food you know there's a certain threshold at which you know the diagnostic criteria say okay you've met three of these five criteria or whatever so you, you can qualify as having an eating disorder um and also how much mental distress does it cause you is it something where you can't leave the house uh you can't make plans with friends because you're so obsessed with what you're going to be eating or not eating um are you binging and purging you know which puts enormous stress on your heart and is very dangerous um so you know uh, there's screening tools you can look at that really help make the distinction and it is normal quote unquote for everybody to have some disordered stuff around food you know emotional eating from time to time or worries about calories or fat or whatever but it's it tips into the eating disorder territory when it takes over your life 
I don't want everyone to go onto you know the internet and do one of those <laughs> like forms where they check things off. But yeah. is there is there something online or is there some reference or person most people can talk to to mm-hmm. kind of see what boxes they fill or not? Yeah, there's a great screening tool at the National Eating Disorders uh, Association. It's NED or let's see national eating disorders.org um go on there and and take a free screening test it's pretty enlightening and i think uh you know it'll show you whether or not you have an eating disorder at risk for one and you know just what the areas you could work on are if there's you know places that are specific challenges for you it's really helpful for that and i would say too if you do think you might have an issue with food it's worth talking to a therapist find someone who specializes in eating disorders because not every therapist does and knows the warning signs um same with nutritionists i think find a nutritionist who specializes and who knows what to look for oh, i know one yeah <laughs> so <Christy> I. Harrison. <laughs> right so yeah you can call me um and you know try challenging yourself too i think it's a, a really good self-assessment tool to give yourself a little challenge like okay if i'm someone who really likes to eat clean and sustainably can i go to wendy's or mcdonald's or whatever and get something and make that my lunch not go home and add extra vegetables not freak out and run five miles to compensate you know not have so much anxiety that you're panicking about it all day you know if you can if you can do those little tests and be okay with it then I think you're more in the disordered category than in the full-blown eating disorder category. But if you find yourself terrified at the thought, even, you know, if you're like, I would never, I would never, that might be an indicator. Yeah. Well, let's talk about nutritional tips, too, because Mm -hmm. there must be a couple simple things that people can do to kind of, you know, ward away the the signs of eating disorders and disordered eating. Absolutely. There's... um, you know, one thing is just not restricting because restricting does set people up for a lot of disordered behavior. If you're prone to, you know, binge and purge kind of uh, disorders, you'll restricting puts you more at risk for binges later and then subsequent purging or restricting. If you're at risk for more of the chronic restricting type of anorexia, which is a much smaller segment of the population, but, you know, a lot of people have this where once they start a diet, it becomes, okay, can I go below every single day? Can I have fewer calories? And can I have fewer calories this week than I did last week? And it becomes this whole other mental thing. Um, so number one rule, I would say, don't go on a diet. You know, if you're trying to be healthier, do it in a way that adds foods and doesn't subtract, you know, maybe replacing like your cheeseburger that you eat every day with a sandwich and a salad on the side, or, you know, kind of small sustainable changes that you can make a little at a time and not go full bore into a new diet. Cause even if that doesn't tip you into an eating disorder, it's not going to be sustainable in the long term. Another two things I want to mention. One, mm-hmm. podcasts are awesome. Podcasts are awesome. <laughs> but how much fun and how much fruition have you found through having a podcast and being able to explore you know, food and psychology with such a range of people? So much. So much fruition. I mean, I think really the reason I did it in the first place was because I needed an outlet. I needed to speak, literally, you know, use my voice and not edit as much as I do when I write on paper. And actually, for a lot of people with eating disorders, I subsequently learned there is a literal stifling of your own voice, of your own, you know, self-expression that happens when you're using the disorder. You're like pushing down your own self-expression. And so doing the podcast and speaking, I think, has been so therapeutic for that part of me that just has never felt comfortable, you know, 
speaking off the cuff. And using your body. I didn't mean mm-hmm. that like, you know, sting Roxanne kind of way. <laughs> but, you know, rock steady your improv group. Uh-huh. How important is expressing yourself that way? Oh, so important. That's been such a, you know, recovery is like a long journey. And I think I've definitely recovered from the eating disorder, you know, several years ago. But then it's it continues, you know, the mental health uh, aspects of recovery can last a lifetime. And I think improv has been that for me. It's been helped me just get out of my head and get into my body and get comfortable saying whatever really fucked up thing comes out of my head because a lot (laughs) of stuff does. Um, And it's delightful. You know, it can be really wonderful to work with a group of people who are also all expressing themselves so authentically and to build something together. Well, it's the freedom away from fear, you know, and and that's what, you know, improv podcasts or um, getting past an eating disorder, whatever it may be. You Mm -hmm. get to this point where you realize the effects of saying something aren't as harsh as the effects of doing something. So Mm -hmm. you have to say something first to be able to put it into action. Absolutely. But you have to say something. Yeah, you have to say something. And saying something is not as scary as you sometimes think it will be. I think a big aspect of eating disorders is shame. People are so afraid to tell anyone what's going on for them and think they're the only one going through it. And one of the reasons I started the podcast, I think, was to give people a sense that, like, it's okay, everybody has some shit, you know. And... So to just be able to speak that truth is so therapeutic. That's such a wonderful subtitle. <laughs> or I, I, I really hope someday you do an episode so, called somebody, everybody has some shit. Oh, yeah. And that's more about, you know, bowel movements and passing and stuff like that. Totally. Yeah. Something we haven't explored enough on the podcast. I'll come back for that one. <laughs> and if you want to hear more about my possible eating disorders or disordered eating, yes. you can listen to Food Psych number 28, Seen and Heard. And if you just want to listen to more about the intersections of food and psychology, Check out Christy Harrison's foodpsychpod.com, a wonderful podcast, podcast for life. Podcast for life. (laughs) Thank you so much for being on. Thanks so much, Michael. to the food scene on heritageradionetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel. Hoping to have you back here next Tuesday at 3. Cheers. Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.